0: Hi, I'm Tyler Saltsy, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news, or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And I would invite you to turn in your copies of the Scripture this morning to Acts 23. In a moment, we will begin reading in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. I was reminded this week that the Bible, God's Word, is the norm that can't be normed. It is the norm for our lives, and there is no higher authority than God's Word, than the Bible. Nothing can come over the Bible and put the Bible in its place. And so with, with that thought of how great God's Word is... What else is there that we would want over us than God's Word? And I'm reminded that we come here this morning because, I come here this morning because I expect God to do something. I expect God to work here this morning. I expect God, by the power of His Word and by the power of His Spirit, to pierce into my heart and to pierce into our hearts collectively together and do something amazing, do something miraculous, do something that is unexplainable. And so, I hope that's your prayer. I fear too many people come to church and they expect nothing to happen and should we be surprised if they come with such an expectation and nothing does happen? You hear expectantly this morning, believing God can do something and God will do something in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. And would you think, am I receptive to that idea? My, am I at least receptive to that happening? And that we would say even now, Lord Jesus, do something in me. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together out of respect and reverence for God's word? Acts chapter 23, beginning in verse 12, and we will remember that Paul has just been arrested by the Roman authorities. He's being held by them because the Jews have been upset by him and by the time that he has spent in the temple. But Jesus Christ just came and appeared to Paul and encouraged Paul, and now we pick up here in Acts 23, verse 12. Let's read together. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, For more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias To His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor... They presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. All-wise, Father, let us be doers of the word and not hearers only, that we may be blessed in our doing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I love the hymnal of the Bible, the the Psalter. And what I love about it is its raw wrestlings about the truth of God. The book of Psalms at times brings us to the heights of glory, the mountaintops of triumph with victory and with abundant rejoicing. But it also brings the laments. The dirges, the valley of despair, the questions we often are afraid to ask, the discord that sometimes rages in our soul over who we know God to be and what we're experiencing in our own lives. One such wrestling comes in Psalm 42, verse 3, when the psalmist says this. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? It is the taunting question that arises from the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. Look at your situation. Look at what is happening to you. You who say that you believe in the almighty, infinite, living and loving God. Does a God like that let something like this happen in your life? And the psalmist is so driven to despair that the taunting of his enemies have now even become like the taunting of his tears. And now he begins to question within himself, where is my God? Our world is constantly taunting us with such a question. Where is your God? But as we, are we as Christians ever tempted to ask that question? Are we ever driven to despair, to such hardship, to such trial to such uncertainty, to such chaos that we are tempted to think, God, where are you? At times it might seem as if God is so absent, so far, so silent that we are left to ourselves to make the best of it in life, to navigate the turbulent waters on our own, to figure out our own way. (laughs) And at times, We can be so fickle that it can happen in an instant. Sometimes it doesn't take us long to jump to that question. Or at least let that question question begin to plague us and give us unrest in our souls. And so, it might be in our text this morning. Did you notice as we read this text, never mentions God. You notice it never mentions Christ it would appear to be a mere retelling of events without any explanation behind them whatsoever but we must ask ourselves why the author of acts why luke included these events why did he tell us these details and even more importantly why has god included them in his word to us just before this text in verse 11 in the night the lord jesus christ himself came and appeared to Paul. He stood next to him. He came to comfort him. He came with reassuring words, strengthening words, hopeful words. Take courage, Paul. I am with you. Take courage, Paul. I will get you where I want you to go. Take heart, Paul. God is going to let His will be done in your life. A night full of light and life and good news. But at the break of day comes the bad news. It looked so good the night before, but now we meet an obstacle, something that has the potential in our own minds to doubt the very words Christ just said, to doubt the very presence that Paul just experienced. And it happens overnight, so quickly, so good to so bad, and no time. And that is life, my friends. You think it's all going so well, going so good, give it five minutes. No, give it five seconds. Good to bad, in the snap of your fingers, and what is going to happen to you? What are you going to do about it? Where will it take you? Did Jesus really just mean what he said? Is there reason to take courage? It's one thing to theoretically trust in God's sovereignty. It's another thing completely to experientially trust in God's sovereignty. What's the difference? Theoretically means it sounds good to our ears. Yes. I believe God is sovereign. I believe that he will get me through anything. I believe that he is over everything and has a purpose for everything. And someday, when the going gets tough, I know God will get me through because I believe he is sovereign. It sounds spiritual. It sounds mature. I love the truth that God is sovereign. And we can know it. We can define it on paper. We can mark out its definition in a sentence or two. That God is sovereign means that God exercises His rule over His creation, it's an exercise of His power over everything. God directs everything to fulfill His purposes. We can know it intellectually, but if we stop there, that's a problem. Because you can know that God is sovereign, but you don't know Christ. God does not want us to be theorists when it comes to his sovereignty. He wants us to know it firsthand. He wants us to experience it. He wants it to be something that has to take hold of us when we've lost everything else. He wants it to be there when everything else has been stripped away, when everything that we wrongly trusted in when we had sinfully placed our hope in all of these things is gone he wants us to have to grapple with it in our own lives as those who are seeking to be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ which of us wants to be a Job remember Job <laughs> he loses everything All of his possessions, all of his children die, he loses his health. I want to be Job in theory. Yes, sounds so nice. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's sing about it. But no way, God, I don't want to experience it. I don't really want anything to be taken away. I don't really want to be on the brink of disaster But that is precisely why it is in the Bible. Not so you can be an armchair theologian, but because you are going to experience life, and then what? And we need to know it experientially because not only does it glorify God... Not only is it used in our lives, but because young people need to know it as well. They need to see it. They need to be told the truth. Tell them the truth about God. God might take everything away from you. God might leave you naked and alone and suffering. God might not cause the darkness that engulfs you ever to lift. God might give you constant pain and hurt in your heart. And how are you going to give young people the proper answer, the proper perspective in all of these scenarios if you have ignored them and, sh- and shoved them aside? Placated them with things of this world and with mind-numbing entertainment. You've never answered the question, where is your God? And what do we expect then? What do we expect when they experience life? What do we expect when that question haunts them and it becomes their tears day and night? You've never given them the answer. You've never answered that question yourself in your own heart, in your own life. We like when we watch movies, television shows, we like cliffhangers, read books, we like cliffhangers, just not cliffhangers that involve our own lives, just not cliffhangers with people or things that we hold dear, just not cliffhangers that are so dangerous and uncertain and difficult that we don't know what's going to happen next. As Christ witnesses, what is it that we are going to hold to when it appears that God is absent When it appears that God has left us, when it looks like we are on our own, what is it that we are going to call to our minds in those times so that we hold fast to Jesus Christ? Because it can and very well will happen in a moment when you least expect even as Paul just had the Lord Jesus Christ standing next to him, and then comes the morning full of uncertainty. So, three things this morning that I think we need to remember, think upon, hold on to, when that question of where is your God plagues us. Number one, man's plot, man's plots, Will not thwart God's plan. Man's plots will not thwart God's plan. <clears throat> Paul had just had a very tumultuous day in the temple with the Roman authorities. And now these Jews come together again and they conspire against Paul. They make a plot against him. Everything that has happened, everything that Paul has said previously, nothing has quieted the confusion. Nothing has diffused the situation. Rather, it's gone from bad to worse. And so these men now come together and they bind themselves to an oath. This binding of an oath is a serious promise that they have made, so serious that we could rightly think about it as if they have bound themselves to a curse if they do not follow through. Same idea here is used with Peter. When he is confronted and said, you're a follower of Jesus, remember that? It says that he called a curse upon himself. Say, no, I'm not, not a follower of Jesus. These, these men are calling a curse upon themselves, binding themselves by an oath. And what do they bind themselves to? Look at this. I will neither eat or taste any food. I will not drink until Paul has been killed. To my own detriment, to my own hurt, I will do these things. I will not take care of myself until I have killed Paul. Do you think a person who makes an oath like that is determined? Do you think they're serious? It demonstrates just how zealous they are in their position. They believe Paul to be a, a traitor. They believe Paul to be blaspheming God. They believe Paul to be preaching against the law, against the temple, and against the Jewish people. They believe Paul to be a schismatic. And there's only one thing to do with such a person, and that is kill him. And this oath taken by more than 40 men, more than 40, come together and say, we are going to kill this man, so help us. We won't eat or drink, we will not rest, we will not have any comfort until he is dead. Having a group of people get together does not automatically make them right. You can have a large group like this and still be wrong, still be completely blinded by the deceitfulness of sin. And they were willing to break the law, break the Mosaic law to do it. Remember that commandment? That God spoke to Israel out of the fire? Thou shalt not murder? It's precisely what this is. Premeditated, unadulterated murder, the shedding of innocent blood. Even the leaders of Israel, even the chief priests and elders, most likely from this council of the Sanhedrin, join in on this conspiracy against Paul. They are complicit. The leaders of Israel who are supposed to uphold the law, supposed to shepherd the people of Israel, whose lives are to be lived as an example before the people in holiness, they cast all of that aside. The sin of the forty continues to spread to the council and they are told to lie. They act like they want Paul to appear before them again so they can determine his case more precisely, more exactly. But these people have plotted to ambush Paul along the way, to put him to death. And Paul wouldn't even get a chance to stand before them again because he would be dead before he even gets there. Should we be surprised that they want to kill a faithful witness of Jesus Christ? They've already stoned Stephen. Just as Stephen had preached to them in chapter 7, they have a long history of rejecting God's messengers. They have a long history of killing God's prophets. Over and over and over again in the Bible, we see man plot against God's person. We see Jacob's sons plot against their brother Joseph. We see Absalom plot against his own father, King David. We see wicked Haman plot against righteous Mordecai in the book of Esther. These and many other instances we could draw our attention to of how God's people are plotted against. People conspire to find ways to kill God's people, to kill God's prophets, to kill God's anointed. Are we surprised if such plotting and conspiring still happens today? We cannot be so foolish and stick our heads in the sand and believe that there are no enemies of Christians, that there are not those who are opposed to us, that there are not those who live as enemies of the cross and would willingly conspire and plot against us, not merely to our own hurt, but even to our own death. The enemies are real, my friends, and we don't need to look any further than what Peter talks about in 1 Peter, that Satan himself is one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter writes that to Christians. (laughs) But let us draw our minds this morning to the outcome of all of man's plotting against Christians. What happens with all of man's plotting against Christ? Where does it get them? What becomes of it? For all of their hopes that Christianity in the name of Christ would be wiped off the face of the earth, God actually uses those sinful plots to further His own plan. You meant it for evil, Joseph says, but God meant it for good. God's plans cannot be ambushed. It's totally impossible. All of man's conspiracy gets them nowhere in their sinful pursuits, but instead it furthers God's kingdom and God's sovereign plan. The plots of these sinful Jews who were so determined, so zealous to kill Paul, God actually uses those plots as a catalyst to move Paul out of Jerusalem and start him on his journey to Rome. That's exactly the place where Jesus Christ said that Paul must go. It was God's will. It was a divine necessity that Paul go to Rome. And God uses this plot to spark that journey. A journey that encourages him to continue to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaim it to some of the most prominent figures of the day. This is fulfilling what Jesus Christ had said of Paul in Acts 9.15. When he says this, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was carrying the name of Christ and would even carry the name before kings, before the rulers of the land. But maybe it should not surprise us that God works this way with Paul because God even worked this way with His own Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Sinful man plotted and conspired against the Son of God Himself. They plotted to kill the author of life, and they did it. They crucified Him. They put Him to death, the hands of lawless men. Peter is saying to them, you are guilty of murdering the Christ, the Messiah, but that was God's definite plan. It was His fixed plan. It was His sovereign plan. It happened exactly how God had planned it, and He planned it to happen this way for the salvation of man. He planned it this way so that the penalty of sin would be paid by Jesus in full. The crucifixion of Jesus was not outside of God's control. It was not outside of God's sovereign plan of redemption. It was always in his control, always happening exactly how he had ordained it to happen. And what became of man's plot? They were shown to be in vain. You thought you were getting rid of Christ. You thought you were removing this pretend king from your midst. All the while, you were killing the real king of glory. But you were not killing God's plan. You were, in fact, propelling God's plan forward because, as Peter goes on to say, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What becomes of man's plotting? It's in vain, it's for nothing, it accomplishes nothing that they want it to accomplish. It never achieves the sinful and wicked goals they have set. But instead, it results in God bringing about his glorious goals that he has planned to come through Jesus Christ. Kill him. Crucify him. You think you won? No. Resurrection. Jesus wins. King Brought back the glorious life. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God laughs at man's plots. Do we fear man's plots or do we follow God's plan? Do we recognize the power of God's plan that can never be thwarted? Man can do nothing to get God's plan off course. Do you trust God's plan? Do you trust Him, not walking by sight, but walking by faith? And will you do that when it seems like everyone is against you, when it seems like everyone is against the cause of Christ? Do you hold fast to this absolute fact? No matter what is going on, I know this, Jesus wins. Number two. Man's ignorance will not hinder God's provision. Man's ignorance will not hinder God's provision. I love the book of Zechariah, prophet from the Old Testament. Zechariah wrote his book in a period of Israel's history where they were just beginning to return back to their land after being exiled in Babylon. And one man named Zerubbabel has been given the responsibility of rebuilding the temple. And he's just started when the Lord comes to Zechariah and Tell Zechariah the prophet something. Listen to what he says here. This is from Zechariah 4, 9 through 10. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. That house is the temple. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Did you hear what the Lord tells Zechariah? This day looks like a day of, of small things. It looks like a day of insignificant things. It looks like a day of unimpressive things. And there are those who will despise such a day of small things. But what started out as small, what started out looking insignificant, what started out looking unimpressive will reach a glorious end. God uses small things. God uses insignificant things. God uses unimpressive things to do great, amazing, incomprehensible things. Why does He do it? So that He gets all the glory. And He does the same thing in our text, doesn't He, this morning? It starts out small. It's Paul's nephew, son of his sister. We don't know much about Paul's family, but apparently it would seem his sister and family are living in Jerusalem. Here then is Paul's nephew. We don't know how old he is. He could be in his teens. He could be younger. Some suggest a young boy because it says that the tribune takes him by the hand, which you might do with more of a young boy than you would do a teenager. But however old, here is someone fairly small, fairly insignificant, fairly unimpressive, Yet the Lord chooses him to overhear the evil plot, and the boy takes the message first to Paul, who is still in custody of the Roman guard. Paul can have visitors. In fact, he might have been dependent upon friends and family to care for him while he was in custody, but the boy comes with some news. He relays this information to Paul, and what is Paul's reaction? Think about, if you were to hear this news relayed to you, what would you think? How would you react? I'm going to die. Does Paul go into wringing his hands, worrying, lose it because people want to kill him? I don't know how I'm going to escape this scenario. There are more than 40 men who have devoted themselves, cursed themselves until they kill me. We don't get any sense of panic from Paul. Instead, he sends the boy immediately to the tribune to relay the message to him. And the tribune receives this one from the prisoner of Paul, who has just been the cause of so much trouble and consternation for him. And I think there's a sense where this must be an important message. The young boy relays the trick the Jews will try to play on the tribune and even encourages the tribune. Do you hear that? Do not be persuaded. Do not give in to their demands to what they want. They're trying to manipulate you. They're trying to take advantage of you. Don't fall for it. And the tribune dismisses him and instructs him not to tell anyone that he has told him. And I think the reason is very obvious, lest the plot and plan change. And so here is the tribune, this man we know as Claudius Lysias, who is in charge of Paul, who's trying to get to the bottom with what to do with Paul, yet he is ignorant of the plot. He doesn't know what is being devised right underneath his own nose. He doesn't see that the Jews would do anything to undermine his authority in order to get what they want, the death of Paul. He he was ignorant until God provided God was the one who provided this young man to Paul and to the tribune and told them of the scheme. God provided one person, seemingly insignificant, to get around the plot of the Jews and of the Jewish leaders. And how true, as we think about this, how true is this even of all mankind? That we are ignorant. That we do not see clearly what we really need. And that does not hinder though, God's sovereign care for us. I didn't know what I needed. I didn't know how bad I was. I didn't know how sinful I was, how ignorant how I was, how blind I was until God provided, until God opened my eyes to the truth of who I was. The Lord provided the nephew of Paul as a way to show that Paul was in danger and needed something to happen. How is it also true that the Lord, in an even greater way, provided Jesus as a way to show us the danger and destruction of our own selves and that something needed to happen to us? Something needed to change. Jesus, one who started out small, insignificant, unimpressive, would accomplish and bring us the greatest provision that we could ever know in the forgiveness of sin and the granting of eternal life. The day of small things results in a grand and glorious conclusion. And what is it that God has provided to us through Jesus Christ? He's provided a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice that has paid it all that has paid the debt of our sin that we could never pay, that received the penalty for our sin that we could never endure, that bore and satisfied the wrath of God that we could never bear and could never satisfy. The day of small things was transformed by the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the call is for you today. If you have never repented, if you have never turned from your sin, forsaken your sin, hated your sin, today is the day to repent. Turn your back on that sinful life that rightfully deserves the wrath and judgment of God and turn to Christ and believe in Him who provides everything that you need to be saved from yourself and from your sin and and turn to Him who grants life to all who call upon His name. For those who do know God's provision in Christ, will you continue to trust the Lord that He will provide for you? That He will provide even what you are ignorant of, even what you don't know what you need? Would you see that sometimes the Lord provides in a small way to do great things? Sometimes God provides in an ordinary way to do extraordinary things. God used one boy to topple a major conspiracy and preserve the life of Paul. The Lord will provide for you as well. Last one three. God's command will not negate God's control. Man's command will not negate God's control. Claudius Lysias, this tribune, takes the young man's words very seriously. He acts upon them. He doesn't dismiss them or discredit the testimony. No, he does something to stop the plot. And so what does he do? He orders 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 more spearmen to escort Paul out of the city. And Paul is even provided a mount, a horse probably, that he is riding upon. The plan is to get Paul out in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness. This third hour of the night would have been around 9 p.m. The third hour of the night extended from 9 p.m. to 4 a.m., so maybe any time within that range. And here is this massive cohort of Roman soldiers escorting one man out of Jerusalem. Why was Paul given so much attention? Remember that there were more than 40 Jews, more than 40 Jews, who wanted to ambush Paul. So that was no small number. But I also believe that Claudius Lysias... Wanted to, ensure that, wanted to ensure that nothing happened to one prisoner, Paul, under his care. How embarrassing would it have been for him if he couldn't even keep one prisoner alive who was threatened by the Jews, let alone, let us not forget, that this was a Roman citizen under his watch. He had already unlawfully bound Paul and almost unlawfully flogged him, so he was ensuring that nothing worse would happen to Paul And really, so that nothing worse would ultimately happen to him as the one who was in charge. And so, here is this group. If you're doing the math, 470 Roman soldiers attending to Paul. And just to get an idea of how big this company was, at this time there were only 1,000 soldiers in Jerusalem. So... Claudius Lysias sends just about half of the soldiers out of Jerusalem with Paul. And he sends him to this man named Felix. Felix called the governor here. (laughs) The Tribune calls him His His Excellency, the Governor Felix. But Felix was anything but excellent. He was a wicked man, a cruel man. But he was the procurator over this Roman province called Syria. So, it's where Paul was sent. And with most prisoners, you send with them the list of charges against him or against them. And Claudius Lysias reports how Paul came into his custody. And there's some question as you look at this letter of Claudius Lysias, is he telling the truth? (laughs) Slightly maybe bending the truth here or there in his letter? Generally, it's true but perhaps he leaves out a few little details. But there is an important point, and that is this. Paul is innocent. The Jews accused him of wrong, but all of their accusations had to do with Jewish law. God had done, or Paul had done nothing against Roman law that deserved death or even imprisonment. And it's an important statement because not only is it proclaiming Paul's innocence, but it's also proclaiming Christianity's innocence in the Roman Empire. Christians were not living unlawfully in the Roman Empire. They were not living in a way that deserved any kind of persecution or punishment or imprisonment. But it was necessary for the tribune to move Paul up along the ladder with his accusers in order to get to the bottom of what was to be done with him. And so this large company of soldiers took Paul halfway to Caesarea, about 30 miles to this city called Antipatris, then the footmen return back and the, the horses and the soldiers on the horses go with him all the way the last 30 miles into Caesarea. And Felix determines after reading the letter and after asking Paul where he is from and being told that he is from Cilicia, realizes that this falls within his jurisdiction and he will hear the case when the accusers come. So he's kept safe until that time. I want to go back here just for one moment, and I want us to look at verse 27. Look there, where Claudius Lysias in his letter says, I came upon them, that's the Jews, with soldiers, and I rescued him. That word rescued, or delivered, is used a few other times in the book of Acts. Every time it is used, it is always used in relation to God or Christ. So this is a verb, so so every time it's used, it's saying, God rescued, or God delivered, or Christ rescued. You can see that in Acts 7.10, 7.34, 12.11, and 26.17. So think about that. Every time this word is used, always in connection with God doing it, or with Christ doing it, but now in this section, it's not God or Christ, it's Claudius Lysias saying, I rescued Paul. I swept in, and I saved him. I, I delivered him. Does it mean anything? I think, I think it does, and I think it means this. Claudius Lysias, you thought you were rescuing Paul. You can try to take credit for rescuing Paul but we all know who really rescues his people, and it is God. Claudius Lysias, you can give all the commands and orders you want. You can use all your authority to get things done, but none of those are outside of God's control. None of those negates what God is doing. All of these commands, everything that he does, none of it is outside of God's control or apart from God's control. It wasn't merely Claudius Lysias who kept Paul from being killed. It was the Lord who preserved Paul's life. God was doing something in all of these events happening in Paul's life. God was not distant. God was not absent. God was in complete sovereign control. God is doing something in all of these events. And God is doing something in all of the events of your life as well. He is not distant, He is not absent, He is sovereign over everything and everything that you are going through, everything that you are experiencing. And not only is He in control, but He is working. He's working in you, He's working through you. Even right now, this very moment, you hear God's Word, God is working. He's working for His own glory. He is not far off, He is near. Why should you say then when enemies ask, where is your God? How are you going to respond when tears have been your food all night and all day? Are you going to let that doubt creep in? Or are you going to let that question taunt you, where is your God? Maybe we should respond how the psalmist responds in one, uh, Psalm 115, 2 and 3. He says this, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. My God is in control of everything. He does what He wants. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. The Son, my Savior, my Deliverer, my Rescuer, my Advocate, who never ceases to make intercession for me before the throne is there for me, my soul and my future are totally secure in him who is the resurrection and the life. It really is well with my soul. This life is a mist, it's a vapor, but an eternal weight of glory is ahead of me. And a head for all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. And I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand with Him on that day. Take courage, faithful witness of Christ. Your life is in His hands. For the almighty, infinite, sovereign God who says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Father, when we fear our faith might fail, Christ will hold us fast. When it seems the tempter has prevailed, Christ will hold us fast. He will not let our souls be lost. Throughout all of our days. His promises. Shall last. Because we. Have been bought. By him. At such a cost. He. Will hold us. Fast. We don't want to be theorists. When it comes to your sovereignty. O Lord. We want to know it. And we want to have that answer in our hearts and in our minds. So when that question comes, where is your God? We can say, I know right where my God is. Forgive us of our times of doubt, insecurity. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning, who is wrestling with their sin. Who's wrestling with their future, their eternal future. Saying, I don't know. I don't know what's ahead. I don't know what's in store. I don't know what I'm going to do in those times. When everything has been stripped away. Open their eyes to the beauty to the loveliness of Jesus Christ. That they might see the King of glory. Confess Him as Lord. Believe He died on the cross, rose again from the dead. That He can give them life as they call on His name. Lord, we ask that you would press upon them even now that today is the day of salvation. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.